0: Welcome back everyone to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hegadord. Today, the final 3 chapters of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd by Agatha Christie. And now, chapter 25, The Whole Truth. A slight gesture from Poirot enjoined me to stay behind the rest. I obeyed, going over to the fire and thoughtfully stirring the big logs on it with the toe of my boot. I was puzzled. For the first time I was absolutely at sea as to Poirot's meaning. For a moment I was inclined to think that the scene I had just witnessed was a gigantic piece of bombast, that he had been what he called playing the comedy, with a view to making himself interesting and important. But, in spite of myself, I was forced to believe in an underlying reality. There had been real menace in his words, a certain indisputable sincerity, but I still believed him to be on entirely... The wrong tack. When the door is shut behind the last of the party, he came over to the fire. Well, my friend, he said quietly, and what do you think of it all? I don't know what to think, I said frankly. What was the point? Why not go straight to Inspector Raglan with the truth instead of giving the guilty person this elaborate warning? Barrow sat down and drew out his case of tiny Russian cigarettes. He smoked for a minute or two in silence. Then, "'Use your little grey he said. "'There is always a reason behind my actions.' I hesitated for a moment, and then I said slowly, "'The first one that occurs to me "'is that you yourself do not know who the guilty person is, "'but that you are sure that he is to be found amongst the people here tonight. "'Therefore your words were intended to force a confession from the unknown murderer.' Poirot nodded approvingly. "'A clever idea, but not the truth. I thought, perhaps, that by making him believe you knew, you might force him out into the open, not necessarily by confession. He might try to silence you, as he formerly silenced Mr. Aykroyd, before you could act tomorrow morning. "'A trap with my selfish debate! Merci, mon ami, but I am not sufficiently heroic for that.' "'Then I fail to understand you. "'Surely you are running the risk of letting the murderer escape "'by thus putting him on his guard.' "'Borrow shook his head. "'He cannot escape,' he said gravely. "'There is only one way out, and that way does not lead to freedom.' "'You really believe that one of those people here tonight committed the murder?' "'I asked incredulously. "'Yes, my friend.' "'Which one?' There was a silence for some minutes. Then Poirot tossed the stump of his cigarette into the grate and began to speak in a quiet, reflective tone. I will take you the way that I have travelled myself. Step by step, you shall accompany me and see for yourself that all the facts point indisputably to one person. Now, to begin with, there were two facts and one little discrepancy in time, which especially attracted my attention. The first fact was the telephone call. If Ralph Patton were indeed the murderer, the telephone call became meaningless and absurd. Therefore, I said to myself, Ralph Patton is not the murderer. I satisfied myself that the call could not have been sent by anyone in the house, yet I was convinced that it was amongst those present on the fatal evening that I had to look for my criminal. Therefore, I concluded that the telephone call must have been sent by an accomplice. I was not quite pleased with that deduction, but I let it stand for the minute. I next examined the motive for the call. That was difficult. I could only get at it by judging its result, which was that the murder was discovered that night instead of "'in all probability, the following morning. "'Do you agree with that?' "'Yes,' I admitted. "'Yes. "'As you say, Mr. Ackroyd "'have been given orders that he was not to be disturbed. "'Nobody would have been likely to go to the study that night.' "'Très bien. "'The affair marches, does it not? "'But matters were still obscure. "'What was the advantage of leaving the crime discovered that night?' in preference to the following morning. The only idea I could get hold of was that the murderer, knowing the crime was to be discovered at a certain time, could make sure of being present when the door was broken in, or at any rate, immediately afterwards. And now we come to the second fact. The chair pulled out from the wall. Inspector Lagden dismissed that as of no importance. I, on the contrary... "'have always regarded it as a supreme importance. "'In your manuscript, you have drawn a neat little plan of the study. "'If you had it with you this minute, you would see that, "'the chair being drawn out in the position indicated by Parker, "'it would stand in a direct line between the door and the window. "'The window?' I said quickly. "'You too have my first idea.' I imagined that the chair was drawn out, so that something connected with the window should not be seen by anyone entering to the door. But I soon abandoned that supposition, for though the chair was a grandfather with a high back, it obscured very little of the window, only the part between the sash and the ground. No, mon ami, but remember that just in front of the window there stood a table with books and magazines upon it. Now, that table was completely hidden by the drawn out chair, and immediately I had my first shadowy suspicion of the truth. Supposing that there had been something on that table not intended to be seen, something placed there by the murderer. As yet, I had no inkling of what that something might be, but I knew certain very interesting facts about it. For instance, it was something that the murderer had not been able to take away with him at the time that he committed the crime. At the same time, it was vital that it should be removed as soon as possible after the crime had been discovered, and so, the telephone message, and the opportunity for the murderer to be on the spot when the body was discovered. Now four people were on the scene before the police arrived, yourself, Parker, "'Major Blunt and Major Raymond. "'Parker I eliminated at once, "'since at whatever time the crime was discovered, "'he was the one person certain to be on the spot. "'Also it was he who told me of the pulled-out chair. "'Parker, then, was cleared, of the murder, that is. "'I still thought it possible that he had been blackmailing Mrs. Ferrars. "'Raymond and Blunt, however, remained under suspicion since... If the crime had been discovered in the early hours of the morning, it was quite possible that they might have arrived on the scene too late to prevent the object on the round table being discovered. Now, what was that object? You heard my arguments tonight in reference to the scrap of conversation overheard. As soon as I learned that the representative of a dictaphone company had called, the idea of a dictaphone took root in my mind. You heard what I said in this room not half an hour ago. They all agreed with my theory, but one vital fact seems to have escaped them. Granted that a dictaphone was being used by Mr. Aykroyd that night, but why was no dictaphone found? I never thought of that, I said. We know that a dictaphone was supplied to Mr. Aykroyd, but no dictaphone has been found amongst his effects. So, if something was taken from that table... "'Why should not that something be the dictaphone?' "'But there were certain difficulties in the way. "'The attention of everyone was, of course, focused on the murdered man. "'I think anyone could have gone to the table unnoticed by the other people in the room. "'But the dictaphone has a certain bulk. "'It cannot be slipped casually into a pocket. "'There must have been a receptacle of some kind, capable of holding it. "'Do you see where I am arriving?' THE FIGURE OF THE MURDERER IS TAKING SHAPE, A PERSON WHO IS ON THE SCENE STRAIGHTWAY, BUT WHO MIGHT NOT HAVE BEEN, IF THE CRIME HAD BEEN DISCOVERED THE FOLLOWING MORNING, A PERSON CARRYING A RECEPTACLE INTO WHICH THE DICTAPHONE MIGHT BE FITTED. I INTERRUPTED. BUT WHY REMOVE THE DICTAPHONE? WHAT WAS THE POINT? YOU'RE LIKE MR. RAYMOND you take it for granted that what was heard at nine-thirty was Mr. Aykroyd's voice speaking into the dictaphone. But consider this useful invention for a little minute. You dictate into it, do you not? And at some later time, a secretary or a typist turns it on, and the voice speaks again. You mean? I gasped. Poirot nodded. Yes, I mean that. At nine-thirty, Mr. Aykroyd was already dead. It was the dictaphone speaking, not the man. And the murderer switched it on. Then he must have been in the room at that minute. Hmm, Possibly, but we must not exclude the likelihood of some mechanical device having been applied, something after the nature of a time lock, or even of a simple alarm clock. But in that case... "'we must add two qualifications to our imaginary portrait of the murderer. "'It must be someone who knew of Mr. Aykroyd's purchase of the dictaphone, "'and also someone with the necessary mechanical knowledge. "'I had got thus far in my own mind "'when we came to the footprints on the window ledge. "'Here there were three conclusions open to me. "'One, they might really have been made by Ralph Paton. "'He had been at Fernley that night, "'and might have climbed into the study.' and found his uncle dead there. That was one hypothesis. Two, there was the possibility that the footmarks might have been made by somebody else who happened to have the same kind of studs in his shoes. But the inmates of the house had shoes sold with crepe rubber, and I declined to believe in the confidence of someone from outside having the same kind of shoes as Ralph Patton wore. Charles Kent, as we know from the barmaid of the Dog and Whistle, had on a pair of boots Clean dropping off him, as it was described. Three, those prints were made by someone deliberately trying to throw suspicion on Ralph Patton. To test this last conclusion, it was necessary to ascertain certain facts. One pair of Ralph's shoes had been obtained from the three borders by the police. Neither Ralph nor anyone else could have worn them that evening, since they were downstairs being cleaned. "'According to the police theory, "'Ralph was wearing another pair of the same kind, "'and I found out that it was true that he had two pairs. "'Now for my theory to be proved correct, "'it were necessary for the murderer "'to have worn Ralph's shoes that evening, "'in which case Ralph must have been wearing "'yet a third pair of footwear of some kind. "'I could hardly suppose that he would bring three pairs of shoes all alike. "'The third pair of footwear "'were more likely to be boots. "'I got your sister to make inquiries on this point, "'laying some stress on the color in order. "'I admit it, frankly, to obscure the real reason for my asking. "'You know the result of her investigations. "'Ralph Paton had had a pair of boots with him. "'The first question I asked him when he came to my house yesterday morning "'was what he was wearing on his feet on that fatal night.' He replied at once that he had worn boots. He was still wearing them, in fact, having nothing else to put on. So we got a step further in a description of the murderer, a person who had the opportunity to take these shoes of Ralph Patons from the Three Boers that day. He paused and then said, with a slightly raised voice, "'There is one further point. The murderer must have been a person who had the opportunity to purloin that dagger from the silver table.' "'You might argue that anyone in the house might have done so, "'but I will recall to you that Miss Aykroyd was very positive "'that the dagger was not there when she examined the silver table.' "'He paused again. "'Let us recapitulate, now that all is clear. "'A person who was at the three boards earlier that day, "'a person who knew Aykroyd well enough to know that he had purchased a dictaphone, "'a person who was of a mechanical turn of mind.' Who had the opportunity to take the dagger from the silver table before Miss Flora arrived? Who had with him a receptacle suitable for hiding the dictaphone, such as a black doctor's bag? And who had the study to himself for a few minutes after the crime was discovered while Parker was telephoning for the police? In fact, Dr. Shepard. We'll return with chapter 26 right after these sponsor messages and now chapter 26 and nothing but the truth there was a dead silence for a minute and a half and then I laughed you're mad I said no said Poirot placidly I'm not mad It was the little discrepancy in time that first drew my attention to you, right at the beginning. Discrepancy in time? I queried, puzzled. "Mm, But yes, you will remember that everyone agreed, you yourself included, that it took five minutes to walk from the lodge to the house, less if you took the shortcut to the terrace. But you left the house at ten minutes to nine, both by your own statement and that of Parker." "'and yet it was nine o'clock as you passed through the lodge gates. "'It was a chilly night, not an evening a man would be inclined to dawdle. "'Why had you taken ten minutes to do a five-minute walk? "'All along I realized that we had only your statement for it, "'that the study window was ever fastened. "'Ackroyd asked if you had done so. "'He never looked to see. "'Supposing, then, that the study window was unfastened?' Would there be time in that ten minutes for you to run around the outside of the house, change your shoes, climb in through the window, kill Ackroyd, and get to the gate by nine? I decided against that theory, since in all probability a man as nervous as Ackroyd was that night would hear you climbing in, and then there would have been a struggle. But supposing that you killed Ackroyd before you left, as you were standing beside his chair, Then you go out of the front door, run around to the summer house, take Ralph Baton's shoes out of the bag you brought up with you that night, slip them on, walk through the mud in them, and leave prints on the window ledge. You climb in, lock the study door on the inside, run back to the summer house, change back into your own shoes, and race down to the gate. I went through similar actions the other day, when you were with Mrs. Aykroyd. It took ten minutes exactly then home, and an alibi, since you had timed the dictaphone for half-past nine. "'My dear Poirot,' I said in a voice that sounded strange and forced to my own ears, "'you've been brooding over this case too long. What on earth had I gained by murdering Ackroyd?' "'Actually, safety. It was you who blackmailed Mrs. Ferrars. Who could have had a better knowledge of what killed Mr. Ferrars than the doctor who was attending him?' "'When you spoke to me that first day in the garden, "'you mentioned a legacy received about a year ago. "'I've been unable to discover any trace of a legacy. "'You had to invent some way of accounting "'for Mrs. Ferrars' 20,000 pounds. "'It has not done you much good. "'You lost most of it in speculation. "'Then you put the screw on too hard, "'and Mrs. Ferrars took a way out that you had not expected. "'If Akkuret had learnt the truth, "'he would have had no mercy on you. "'You were ruined forever. "'And the telephone call?' "'I asked, trying to rally. "'You have a plausible explanation of that also, I suppose. "'I will confess to you "'that it was my greatest stumbling block when I found that, "'when I found that a call had actually been put through to you "'from King's Abbot Station. "'I at first believed that you had simply invented the story. "'It was a very clever touch, that.' "'You must have some excuse for arriving at Fernley, finding the body, "'and so getting the chance to remove the dictaphone on which your alibi depended. "'I had a very vague notion of how it was worked when I came to see your sister that first day, "'and inquired as to what patients you had seen on Friday morning. "'I had no thought of Miss Russell in my mind at that time. "'Her visit was a lucky coincidence, since it distracted your mind from the real object of my questions.' I found what I was looking for. Among your patients that morning was the steward of an American liner. Who more suitable than he to be leaving for Liverpool by the train that evening, and afterwards he would be on the high seas, well out of the way. I noted that the Orion sailed on Saturday, and having obtained the name of the steward, I sent him a wireless message asking a certain question. This is his reply you saw me receive just now. He held out the message to me. It ran as follows. Quite correct. Dr. Shepard asked me to leave a note at the patient's house. I was to ring him up from the station with the reply. The reply was? No answer. It was a clever idea, said Barrow. The call was genuine. Your sister saw you take it. But there was only one man's word as to what was actually said. Yours. I yawned. "'All this,' I said, "'is very interesting, "'but hardly in the sphere of practical politics. "'You think not? "'Remember what I said. "'The truth goes to Inspector Raglan in the morning. "'But for the sake of your good sister, "'I'm willing to give you the chance of another way out. "'There might be, for instance, "'an overdose of a sleeping draft. "'You comprehend me? "'But Captain Ralph Paton must be cleared. "'C'est sans sounds dire.' I should suggest that you finish that very interesting manuscript of yours, but abandoning your former reticence. "'You seem to be very prolific of suggestions,' I remarked. "'Are you sure you're quite finished?' "'Now that you remind me of the fact, it is true that there is one thing more. It would be most unwise on your part to attempt to silence me as you silenced Monsieur Ackroyd.' THAT KIND OF BUSINESS DOES NOT SUCCEED AGAINST HERCUPE PORO, YOU UNDERSTAND? MY DEAR PORO, I SAID, SMILING A LITTLE, WHATEVER ELSE I MAY BE, I'M NOT A FOOL. I ROSE TO MY FEET. WELL, WELL, I SAID, WITH A SLIGHT YAWN, I MUST BE OFF HOME. THANK YOU FOR YOUR MOST INTERESTING AND INSTRUCTIVE EVENING. PORO ALSO ROSE and bowed with his accustomed politeness as i passed out of the room and our last chapter chapter 27 apologia 5 a.m. i am very tired but i've finished my task my arm aches from writing a strange end to my manuscript i meant it to be published some day as the history of one as the history of one of parro's failures Odd how things pan out. "'All along I've had a premonition of disaster "'from the moment I saw Ralph Patone and Mrs. Ferrars "'with their heads together. "'I thought then that she was confiding in him. "'As it happened, I was quite wrong there. "'But the idea persisted, "'even after I went into the study with Ackroyd that night, "'until he told me the truth. "'Poor old Ackroyd. "'I'm always glad that I gave him a chance. "'I urged him to read that letter before it was too late.' "'Or let me be honest. "'Didn't I subconsciously realize "'that with a pig-headed chap like him "'it was my best chance of getting him "'not to read it? "'His nervousness that night "'was interesting psychologically. "'He knew danger was close at hand, "'and yet he never suspected me. "'The dagger was an afterthought. "'I'd brought up a very handy little weapon of my own, "'but when I saw the dagger lying in the silver table, "'it occurred to me at once "'How much better it would be to use a weapon that couldn't be traced to me? "'I suppose I must have meant to murder him all along. "'As soon as I heard of Mrs. Ferrars' death, "'I felt convinced that she would have told him everything before she died. "'When I met him, and he seemed so agitated, "'I thought that perhaps he knew the truth, "'but that he couldn't bring himself to believe it, "'and was going to give me the chance of refuting it. "'So I went home and took my precautions.' If the trouble were, after all, only something to do with Ralph, well, no harm would ever have been done. The dictaphone he'd given me two days before to adjust. Something had gone a little wrong with it, and I persuaded him to let me have a go at it, instead of sending it back. I did what I wanted to it, and took it up with me in my bag that evening. I'm rather pleased with myself as a writer. What could be neater, for instance, than the following? The letters were brought in at twenty minutes to nine. It was just on ten minutes to nine when I left him, the letter still unread. I hesitated with my hand on the door handle, looking back and wondering if there was anything I'd left undone. All true, you see. But suppose I'd put a row of stars after the first sentence. Would somebody then have wondered what exactly happened in that blank ten minutes? When I looked round the room from the door, I was quite satisfied. Nothing had been left undone. The Dictaphone was on the table by the window, timed to go off at 9.30. The mechanism of that little device was rather clever, based on the principle of an alarm clock, and the armchair was pulled out so as to hide it from the door. I must admit that it gave me rather a shock to run into Parker just outside the door. I have faithfully recorded that fact. Then later, when the body was discovered, and I had sent Parker to telephone for the police, what a judicious use of words! "'I did what little had to be done. "'It was quite little, "'just to shove the dictaphone into my bag "'and push back the chair against the wall in its proper place. "'I never dreamed that Parker would have noticed that chair. "'Logically, he ought to have been so gog over the body "'as to be blind to everything else. "'But I hadn't reckoned with the trained-servant complex. "'I wish I could have known beforehand "'that Flora was going to say "'that she'd seen her uncle alive at a quarter to ten. That puzzled me more than I can say. In fact, all through the case there have been things that puzzled me hopelessly. Everyone seems to have taken a hand. My greatest fear all through has been Caroline. I have fancied she might guess. Curious the way she spoke that day of my strain of weakness. Well, she never will know the truth. There is, as Poirot said, one way out. I can trust him, "'He and Inspector Raglan will manage it between them. "'I should not like Caroline to know. "'She's fond of me, and then, too, she's proud. "'My death will be a grief to her, but grief passes. "'When I have finished writing, "'I shall enclose this whole manuscript in an envelope "'and address it to Poirot. "'And then? What shall it be? Veronal. That would be a kind of poetic justice.' Not that I take any responsibility for Mrs. Farrar's death. It was the direct consequence of her own actions. I feel no pity for her. I have no pity for myself, either. So let it be Verinal. all. But I wish Hercule Poirot never retired from work and come here to grow vegetable marrows. The End Thanks for joining us for this great Agatha Christie mystery, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. I truly hope you enjoy it. If you enjoy 1001 Stories for the Road and the stories we have here, we always appreciate your sharing our show with others, letting them know about it, and we also appreciate your good reviews. Thank you so much for joining me with this story. It's been a great story. I've enjoyed it, and I hope you have as well. I'm going to keep you surprised until we start the next story. I have a few in mind, but we'll just see where that goes. As for now, everyone, thank you so much for being a part of the journey. It's great to have you with me. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. Take care, stay safe, everyone, and we'll be back soon.